fits so perfectly with the message today. And then the fact that we were able to have the, the, the baby dedication. And even communion, our focus really is on life. Even in the Lord's table and remembrance. We remember that because of His death, we have life. And that's what we were singing about. That's why we can sing that He's resurrecting me, the resurrected King, and that we have a living hope. Amen? Amen. And, um, you know, so it's, it's a perfect opportunity to open God's Word. Um, and here's what I'd like to do. Um, I would like us to just turn our attention to, um, to Mark. You know, we have been going through this series uh, on Mark, and it's been uh, our focus to look at the way of Jesus, because it's all about discipleship. And you know, um, we have noticed in the past few weeks, especially coming out of um, coming out of Holy Week, that there's been this trend towards the end of the gospel and the end of Jesus' life and ministry that people, um, especially the religious leaders, have been trying to test him, haven't they? They've been testing him, trying to trap Jesus into saying or doing something. That would get him in trouble, either with the people, his followers, or with the religious leaders, or even the, the Roman leaders. And so today is no different, and we see that happen once again. And so there's this group of leaders called the Sadducees, and we're going to see this story in Mark 12, if you want to open your Bibles, and it'll be up on the screen in a moment. It's Mark 12, verses 18 to 27. And in this particular um, event, what's happening is there is now a group of leaders called the Sadducees. You heard of them? And they were sort of like, they were part of the priesthood, and they were sort of the um, aristocracy, if you would. And here's some interesting things we need to know before we dive into our passage. The Sadducees, okay, they did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in resurrection. They didn't believe that there was life after death. They didn't believe in angels. But yet, they believed in the first five books of the Bible. The books of Moses, we call them. And so yes, they were devoted to the Scriptures, but just those five books and nothing else. But yet, Jesus confronts them in everything they should know when they try to test them. So this is the group of leaders who approach Jesus now. The Sadducees. They don't believe in angels or life after death or the resurrection. And only in the first five books of the Bible. And so they come up with this story they believe is so wonderful. And uh, they figure it's just going to be the perfect way to trap Jesus. And they talk about a law from the Old Testament about marriage. It's called the Leveret Law. It's about what happens if a woman marries a man, they have no kids, what should happen in order that the family line, the family name continues? And so in the law, it says that then the brother, the man's brother or closest male relative would then marry the woman so that hopefully they would have kids. And so the Sadducees bring up this idea of marriage and marriage in heaven. Now, you know, um, this is one of those passages where you read it and you feel like well this really stinks i don't like this at all because you'll see jesus basically says to us 
There is no marriage in heaven. And you'll see why that comes up. And so um, when he talks about marriage, I'm thinking, you know what? I like being married. And we've been married, my wife and I, Claudia, almost 28 years. And we enjoy being married. And I, I remember way back on that day when I saw my bride walking in and my jaw just dropped when I saw her in her gown and and, and everything, and just so beautiful. But there's so much of a picture in our passage today about marriage and the spiritual significance. But when Jesus says there's no marriage in heaven, I say, I don't like that, Jesus. I'm not crazy about that idea. Are you telling me that for all eternity, I'm not going to be married? Because I'm really enjoying being married here on earth. But let me say this, for those of us that are married, there's, this is actually not a downer. In a way, hopefully you'll see, this is actually hope. And it should bring us hope that in a way, to understand that there is no marriage as we know it in heaven. And hopefully we'll open that and see why. But you know, one of the things that I love about being a pastor is performing weddings. I mean, I love baby dedications and they're so unique in baptisms, but officiating a wedding, especially between two believers, is so very special. And why? Because marriage in God's eyes, in His design, is supposed to be a living picture of the gospel. I'm going to say that again. Marriage between two believers is designed by God to be a picture in this world, evidence of the gospel. Why? Because marriage is all about sacrificial love. And of course, we know that the gospel, the center of the gospel, is what Christ did for us. You know, in just a few minutes when I'm done with the message, we're going to gather around the Lord's table and remember His death and resurrection. But we remember that through His death, we have life because the gospel is all about new life because of His death, because of His sacrifice, see? So marriage in our sacrifice to one another as husband and wife is designed by God to be a picture of the glorious gospel. And so even more so to say, well, boy, I mean, I really thought God like really loved marriage and He instituted it for many reasons, so why wouldn't it exist in heaven? You know, I mean, I love performing and, and uh, officiating weddings because we get to talk about these things and you see a, a new um, a bride and groom and they're beaming and so excited and, and I know as somebody who's been married for 28 years like really they don't know anything, <laughs> right? <laughs> but yet there's still so much joy ahead of them. But we try to focus that ceremony, that brief but powerful ceremony on the fact that God designed marriage and He did it for a reason but yet in heaven... There'll be no need for marriage. So let me read our passage for today. It is, again, it is from uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. And um, it's, uh, it's this just short passage about the Sadducees trying to trump Jesus and say, look, there can be no resurrection because look at our scenario and after you read it, you might even chuckle and laugh because it's so ridiculous. But yet they really thought they were really proud of themselves and thought that they had him cornered. And so here's what it says. 
It says in Mark 12, 18 to 27, the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offering for his brother, offspring for his brother. So then they kind of tell the story. So there were seven brothers, and this is made up, by the way. The first took a wife, but when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. So basically, they went on to say that the husband after husband after husband died. And the woman would continue to marry the brothers in succession, because that's what the law said. And there were some uh, men I was talking to earlier, and they were had said they had a discussion about this, and they said it's interesting because you would think after the first two or three that perhaps she would be suspected of something, right? You know? And then maybe even herself after the first few would be like, is this really what I'm doing? Is this really worth it? Right? But yet, in their silly scenario, they, they, they draw it out to seven, seven husbands, and they never had offspring. So they say, last of all, the woman also died. No wonder she was married. Okay. In the resurrection, here's their question. Here's their question. In the resurrection, when they rise again, when they all remember, they don't believe in the resurrection, so it's a made up scenario. They're saying, Jesus, in the resurrection, like you believe in this, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. See, so here's their, their scenario, their thinking. Because there's no way this one woman could be married to seven men at the same time in heaven. That proves there's no resurrection. That's their thinking, see? So convoluted that it is. You could picture Jesus probably chuckling and they're like smirking like, hey, we got him. And so here's what what it says. Jesus said to them. And you got to love the way Jesus approaches the religious leaders. Different every time but always right to the point and always responding to a question with a question. So here's what he says. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses? Remember, he knew they only believed in the books of Moses. So he's going right to it. In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And that's how he ends that. So let me just give that quick overview again. And we're going we're gonna to look at each verse, each section briefly. And then we're going to get to what I call the so what part. It's our application. So what about all of this for us? What does it mean? What do we walk away with today to do? What are sort of our action steps? So of, co- of course they're trying to trap him because they don't believe in the resurrection. They want to get him in trouble. And you remember this is Tuesday or probably perhaps Wednesday of the last week of his life. And they're trying over and over again to trap him. 
And so it says in, in 18 to 23, is there a silly question? But then in verse 24, what does he say? See, in verse 24, Jesus responds and says, first of all, the reason that you're wrong is twofold. Because you don't know God and His power, and you don't know His Word. So let's stop there for just a second. They came to a wrong conclusion about resurrection and life after death because they had a wrong interpretation and wrong understanding of God's Word, first and foremost. They didn't know the Scriptures, but yet... They touted themselves as ones who focused on the first five books and they knew it backwards and forwards. They knew all about it, but yet they didn't know about the resurrection. See, they made assumptions and didn't know all of Scripture. And that can happen with us sometimes, doesn't it? As we're reading something and it doesn't make sense, perhaps we're not looking at the whole counsel of God. Because if we read all the counsel of God, we'll see there's no contradictions and other verses might help to inform something we're reading. Therefore, that's why I think it's really important that we go through books of the Bible in our sermon series because we have to get even to passages like this where I don't want to talk about that there's no marriage in heaven. And last week, I didn't want to talk about taxes and obeying laws even under a corrupt government. But yet we go through the whole council and it informs everything else that we read. Does that make sense? So that's what we're doing. And so what happens is, is he's basically calling the Sadducees out saying, look, you're supposed to be priests, learned men of the law, and you don't even know about the resurrection. And he says, here's why you're wrong. Two things. You don't know your Bible. You don't know the word. But you also don't know God because God is powerful. And then he goes on to unpack that. So that's kind of the context what we're looking at. So remember those two things that, that they didn't know the Scriptures and they didn't know the God who spoke them and wrote them, see? They didn't know about Him and His power. So they were reading into the, the, the Scriptures what they had already assumed. But see, our responsibility is to know the Bible, to know the Scriptures, to read it and study it and meditate on it, to search the the Scriptures, to pray for understanding, to read it as it's given to us in plain language, just a, a very literal, simple, plain interpretation of what it says from Genesis to Revelation. So that's our call to action from this, because Jesus is saying to the, the, the Sadducees, you don't know God's Word, so therefore you're wrong. And you're quite wrong, he says at the end. But see, also he says, you're wrong not only because you don't know what the Scriptures say and you're assuming things. He says, you don't know the power of God. Now, isn't it stand to reason that we would not truly understand the power of God if we're not reading His Word? It's, it's, it makes sense, right? How are we going to get to know God if we're not reading His Word? Because that is how God primarily revealed Himself to human beings. To, to His children, to His creation. The God of the universe chose to reveal Himself to us. In, in, in and of itself, that is truly amazing and astounding. But He chose to do it by leaving us His Word. And of course, we know Jesus is the living Word. So He embodied all of that. So we follow, that's what we call this series in Mark, the way of Jesus, because He is the very Word of God. And so not only would He know the Word, which means to know Jesus, but we need to know His power. And, God, and Jesus says, 
you are so wrong and misguided because you don't know the power of the God you say you believe in. That's something. Now, I just happened to notice that when Chris and Alyssa and their family left, it was like half the church just went out. It was such a big family. <laughs> it's all good. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's beautiful. And we see that Jesus is, is teaching them, admonishing them, right? You need to know. Why? Because in the power of God is life. I mean, we just had the family up on stage celebrating new life. And we're going to look at that more in a a moment. But here's what he's saying. You see, you don't know the Word, and you don't know the Word, capital W. You don't know God and His power. So we don't know the Scriptures. We can't fully know God's power. To know Him, to have a relationship with Him, is to know His character. I think we've all experienced that, right? In some way or another, you open God's Word, you're reading. You're reading, and we're praying, and God reveals Himself to us in that way. We get to know more about His love, His mercy, His grace in deeper and deeper ways, right? And so even in all of His creation, He reveals Himself to us. So we are not to underestimate God's power. I mean, what we were just singing about today, new life and resurrection and living hope, that's all because our God is powerful, right? And if God can create life, I think He can handle death, can He? And we certainly know that to be true. Even in our remembrance in a few minutes of the Lord's death, there'll be a scripture I'll read where, where Paul reminds us that we're going to do this thing called communion until he comes back because he defeated the grave. Right? It's amazing. So we should not underestimate God's power. We should never assume things about who he is. People do that all the time, church. It's one of the great problems of our age and has been throughout humanity that people think they know God. They say, yeah, me and God, we're like, I know who God is. They think they know what it means that God is love or that He's merciful or that He's powerful. But is that the way that we should do it? Is just sort of make it up as we go and take little bits and pieces, maybe of what we heard and put it together, and that's the God that we think is, is the God up in heaven. But yet, he, we, we know this as believers, He reveals Himself to us in His Word And it's so rich and deep that we'll spend a lifetime reading it and we'll never break the surface, right? It's so wonderful. So we are to know God and His power, but it's the God of the Bible. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are to know His Word, to know His power, right? And because in His power He has overcome death, we have power in our own lives, The same power that raised Him from the grave is in us in the Holy Spirit. So we can overcome obstacles and He can do that for us because He is in us. We can call on Him. He is available and willing, ready with His power, but only if we allow Him through our surrender and our yielding and our submission to take control of our lives. See how that works? His power is available to all, but we need to let Him have His way. Let Him have His way with us. We do that by reading the Scriptures and knowing His power. Verse 25, as we move on, He then says this curious thing. He says, you know what? When these people in your made-up story, when, when, they, all right, when they're in heaven, right? The seven brothers and the wife. What does Jesus say? He says, he says here's the thing. There is neither 
marriage. They're not given in marriage, and they will not be married. They're like angels in heaven. Now let me sort of unpack that for a moment. Jesus clearly is saying there is no marriage in heaven, so therefore your story is moot. It's silly. It's ridiculous. It means nothing. Because you assumed, again, there's that word assume. We don't want to assume, right? That they assumed that because they were married on earth, they'd be married in heaven, therefore it disproves the resurrection. And he says, there's no marriage in heaven. But why? They're going to be like the angels. What does that mean? It simply means this, church. There is no marriage in heaven because there is no need for marriage in heaven. Why? Because our relationship with Christ will be fulfilled and consummated. Again, going back to this beautiful picture of marriage and why God instituted it. Why? Because it's supposed to be a picture of His love and our relationship with Him. The marriage is husband and wife. Doesn't God say back in Genesis that the, the, the man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife? The two become one? That's the picture of the marriage relationship. That's supposed to be the visual of us in God. The two become one. That we, could, that we are believers committing ourselves to Him. Don't we also know that Jesus calls Himself the bridegroom and we as the church are the bride? See? We are the ones that are supposed to be putting on that white dress of purity and righteousness, so to speak, preparing ourselves for His return. Because when He comes back for us, church, we will then enjoy what we see in Revelation called the marriage feast of the Lamb. When us, the church, and the bride are finally joined together, we get to see Him face to face with our bridegroom. What a wonderful picture of relationship. So Jesus says, he's basically saying, look, there is no need for marriage as we know it here on earth, this side of heaven, in heaven. Because our relationship with God will be perfect. Now, God gives marriage, and he instituted marriage between one man and one woman for a reason, for many reasons, but two of them in particular. One is to meet our needs, our emotional needs, our physical needs, right? I mean, we, we, that's a big part of being married. So I'm going to commit to living the rest of my life with this person because there is going to be the fact that I get to meet their needs and they're meeting my needs because we all, as humans, have needs, don't we? We have emotional needs. We have needs of affection and physical touch and embrace. And God creates marriage for that in a very special way. But see, in heaven there won't be a need for that because we will be embraced by our Creator. And we won't need what we need here on earth. But isn't it beautiful? God gives it to us here. But it's just a a, a veiled picture of what we look forward to in heaven. But see, God is the one that meets all of our needs. Claudia and I, when we counsel um, young couples that are getting married and we're talking about what marriage life looks like and scripturally what, it, what God designed it to be. And we say, you know what? From the very outset, we say, your spouse, the one that you're about to marry, will never be able to fulfill all of your needs. And at some point, they will let you down. Now, we don't really want to hear that when we're getting excited about being married, right? As we often say, like we were told in, in counseling ourselves before we were married, we were told very first day, Our pastor said, look, just so you know, you're marrying a sinner. Now let's move on. And we were like, whoa, okay. But it grounded us and gave us this perspective. See that that we are not perfect, of course, but God is. And so even in marriage, marriages can be work. 
And relationships of any kind are work and they can be difficult. They're worth it. But they are just a picture of what is to come. But see, there's another reason that God instituted marriage here on earth. And it's simply for procreation. So that we can perpetuate the human race. God put that into motion. It says one man and one woman, and they join together, and they could be fruitful and multiply, right? That's God's plan. That's His design and His idea. Will there need to be multiplication of the human race in heaven? No, Jesus says they'll be like the angels. Why does He say that? Not because we're going to get our wings like Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life. Not like that, right? It's not because we're going to be fluttering around on the clouds with our wings. No, he says you're going to be like angels. Why? Here's a really good theological point to make. There are right now as we speak the same number of angels in heaven as there were when God created them. Angels do not procreate. It's not angels don't die and then there's new baby angels. It doesn't work that way. There's the same amount of angels. So when Jesus says there's no marriage in heaven, there's no need for it. He's saying, first of all, all of your needs will be met by God perfectly and for eternity. But two, you don't even need to procreate anymore. One of the reasons God instituted marriage here, because you're going to be like the angels. There won't be a need for that. See? But let me give you some hope, church. And this is what I found to be truly hopeful. Even though we say, yeah, this is really, this really stinks. There's not going to be marriage in heaven, so my spouse and what I'm not going to know them, I'm not sure about that. I tend to believe that there's enough in the Scripture that tells us that we will know loved ones in heaven. Right? And isn't that a part of our great hope here and now? That we will be, re- that, right? We talked about resurrecting. That we look forward to that day that He returns for us For the church, it says the dead in Christ will rise first. We will meet everybody in the air. What a glorious time that will be. So I do believe that in heaven for all eternity and in the kingdom where we we get to reign with Christ for a thousand years, we will know in some way, we can't understand it, we will know our loved ones. And so your spouse, your husband, your wife, you will somehow know them. But I tell you this, no matter what it looks like, it's going to be infinitely better infinitely better in our relationship than it is here and you know what for those of us those of us again we love being married we can't picture that but yet we know it's true that it will be perfect in heaven our relationships will be perfect there'll be a new reason a new need for it and whatever it is we're going to love it and we're not going to complain and we're not going to be envious right it's going to be wonderful and that is our great hope and so even though we say jesus what do you mean no marriage in heaven We look at it and we say, yes, you know what? That is a wonderful promise and a hope. Because that is perfection. Here and now, it's good, but it's not perfect. But one day, our relationship with Him, and in some way, our relationship with others, will be perfect. And so, it also gives us a hope. Before we conclude those thoughts, we we say it gives us hope. Why? Because when our loved ones pass on, we mourn. Our loss, not their loss, because they're with Jesus. We mourn our loss here and the loss of that relationship and that physical affection and that touch and hearing their voice and all of that that we lose. Whether it's parents or spouses or, or, or children or relatives, whatever it is, but isn't that a glorious hope we have in Christ? Because He came back from the dead that we then have hope of eternal life and that we will see our 
our loved ones again that have passed on from this life to the next. Right? Even the fact that he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. What an honor. What an honor. And we will be joined with them. So have hope, church. Have hope that you will once again see those deceased loved ones that you, you miss so dearly. And finally, as we wrap it up, in verse 26 and then 27, Jesus, of course, and this is so important, He goes right back to the Word that they should know, the Sadducees. And He says to them, as for this idea of the dead being raised, the resurrection, He says, have you not read in the book of Moses? What He's saying is, you should know this. In the passage about the bush, so remember that story about Moses and the burning bush? Right? And he sees uh, God and he can't even walk there. It's holy ground. And God says, you have to go now to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And what does Moses say? Who should I say sent me? And Jesus says, remember that story about the bush? How God spoke to Moses saying, I... Now listen. He says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. He's not, Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So in and of itself, and it's important why we go back to the original language, when it says that, it's like a present tense. Saying, God is saying, I still am their God. You know why? Because they're right here with me. Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had, Jacob had died at that point, had passed on, and he's saying, God is saying, they're with me now. So Jesus is using this as proof of life after death. Because God says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are with him at that moment when he meets Moses in the burning bush. Isn't that cool? That's what Jesus is, that's what he uses as proof. He says, so even God, in the books that you should know, Sadducees, says that he is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. It makes it clear. So there is life from death. That's Jesus' death. We'll remember in a moment. We should celebrate life every day. So what does that mean for us? Married couples, couples, we are to be thankful that God gave you your spouse. In any relationship, God is to be the center, the reason, the strength, even the power for forgiveness. Because again, relationships are not perfect here uh, in this side of heaven. We are to be thankful for all relationships. And they are very fulfilling. But our first love is to be God. Because He will never let us down. And He's the only one that can fulfill all of our needs. But also, Jesus is telling us there is power in the resurrection. When He says you don't know God's power, He means you don't know that God has power even over death. So there is power in the resurrection, but it means daily. We sang that earlier. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. What does that really mean? It means that every day we are given the hope of new life. As we surrender ourselves to Him. Because we died with Him, we then live with Him. But that's an everyday thing. Every day we live out His forgiveness, His mercy, His grace. We are renewed. So no wonder He says, know the Scriptures. Because through the Scriptures, our minds are changed. And our hearts are changed. Romans 12, right? When Paul says, don't be conformed to this world any longer. But what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That means read the Scriptures. Know Know your Bible, and you will then be renewed daily. We are called as disciples by Jesus to die to ourselves every day. He says, if you want to be my disciples, here's what you do. Take up your cross daily and follow me. What does that mean? 
That means every day we die to self, living for Him. We put our wills aside at His feet. We lay them so that He can then be in control. We have life because of Him and because of His death on the cross. Every day we are called then to die to self. Because we have believed in the once and for all death and resurrection of Christ, we can then celebrate every day as we put ourselves aside. Paul talks about it all the time. Putting the, laying the old self aside, we do that as a way of dying so that we can be continually renewed. The rebirth being reborn. See, that is simply called sanctification. It's the lifelong journey of becoming more like Christ by surrendering ourselves to Him. Some scriptures to wrap it up. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We had to lose our life to save it in discipleship. And when it says saved, that word saved doesn't always mean eternal salvation. That word saved in, in the New Testament also often means being saved like rescued. Being saved from pain and consequences of sin. Mark eight thirty four to 35 And calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake and the Gospels will save it. See? Save to life. But what happens when we're disobedient? We don't understand God's power. We lose out on that abundant life that we're talking about. John 10.10 See, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, Jesus says. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's that abundant life that Jesus wants for us. That's the everyday, dying to self, taking up our cross, following Him. He renews our strength, gives us new life. We do that by abiding in Him and His Word. Two things the Sadducees did not do. Finally, I talked about baptism. Baptism is a wonderful picture of this. We go under the water representing death in Christ in the grave, and then we come up refreshed and renewed and clean and pure and holy because of Christ's blood to a new life. See? When you're under the water, you're not breathing. It's, like a, it's a symbolism of death. When you come up, you take that breath. It's new life. It's new life in, in baptism. That's why Jesus commanded it for the church. Romans 6, 4-8. to We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, there it is. For if we have been united with Him in death, in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's the denial. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We have been freed from the the power of sin in our lives see sin sin is still present until christ returns but we don't have to give in to sin anymore so that power has been taken away from sin we sang that the roaring lion confesses the grave has no hold on me so remember in our passage today jesus says that god is the god of the living right i want to end with uh, with this i people joke around all the time that i say in conclusion and then I go on for about a half an hour. But I guarantee you this is the last thing I'm going to read and say. 
Because I can't say anything after these words. This is from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. It would be wrong of me to say anything else because then we're going to move into a time of communion. And just briefly, we're going we're to pass the, the, the bread and the cup and we're going to pray over it and we're going to take it together as a church because Jesus said to do it because it's, sim- it's symbolic of His death and His resurrection. We're going to do that. But here's what I'm going to read. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. If you know it, it's about this thing we call the rapture. It's about the return of Christ. Let this be your words of hope today, church. We do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. There's our hope. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then... We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, because of all that, encourage one another with these words. Is that encouraging to you today? I hope so. Let this also, this remembrance of Jesus around the Lord's table, let it also be an encouragement. Yes, we focus on His death We focus on His suffering. And we focus on all that it truly meant. And that is right and good. But you know, when the ancient church 